This is The Guardian. My job isn't to fix racism. I wasn't going to present these fairy tale characters. I wanted to present reality as it is. But then they can unpack it and go, all right, so what's wrong about this? Or what do you think about this? And leave it to people. But you really have to have a strong backbone and rely on people and go, hey, guys, I'm not super racist. It's just uh, sometimes in order for people to grow, you have to show what it is that they need growth in. Growing up as a Muslim teenager... I didn't always understand what I read in young adult fiction in Australia. The drinking, the partying, the parent-sanctioned kissing, that wasn't really the stuff that my day-to-day was made of. And that's why reading The F Team by Rawa Aja was such an amazing experience. This is a book that I can relate to, even at the age of 32. There's the slightly embarrassing but really loving parents, the annoying brothers who you could kill but would still do anything for, and the culture clashes that are the reality for a lot of diverse teens coming of age in our suburbs. Hi, I'm Zoya Patel, and this is Book It In, the podcast where we have conversations with top authors about the ideas that shape their work. This episode, I'm chatting to author Rawa Aja. Her debut novel, The F Team, takes us into the lives of teenage boys in Punchbowl in southwest Sydney, who are on a mission to save their school from being closed. There are rivalries, romance, racism, and redemption on the cards, so let's get stuck into it. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, Rawa, it's such a pleasure to be chatting to you because... There's loads and loads of themes that weave throughout the F team as a novel, but at the center is this core wolf pack of four young men. So can you tell us a little bit about them and the situation that they find themselves in as they're kind of heading into year 10 um, at Punchbowl High? So basically the wolf pack pretty much stemmed from uh, myself being a mentor at Punchbowl Boys. So I actually worked at Punchbowl Boys um, as a youth mentor for over six months, every single week I'd come in and I'd work with year 10 boys. Um, and I sort of did a bit of observation at uh, Belmore boys, very similar in uh, school-wise. And so basically um, the Wolfpack stemmed from just observing these young boys and their uh, the way they communicated with each other, the way they talked to their teachers. Um, and amongst or underneath all that cheekiness, um, was a real strong sense of brotherhood. It really was. Um, the idea of uh, never, ever, uh, I'm going to use a slang term, ratting out your friends is such a big deal there. And, and the um, loyalty that they had for one another was so inspiring to me. Um, if you unpack all the 
if you look past the troublemakers or if you look past some of the uh, things that they were doing, uh, underneath it all was this real strong sense of brotherhood and love for their community and their school and their friends. And I thought, you know, I don't read much about a strong, let's say, uh, friendship with boys. Um, you sort of don't read about that a lot. And it's really, really common and prevalent in amongst the Arab community. Um, and I sort of wanted to weave myself in and out from a perspective of, of trying to not be biased or so trying to navigate through the sometimes toxic masculinity um, as well, which was very difficult for me not to intervene all the time, but sort of just to stand back and let it happen. Um, but the Wolfpack stemmed from just my experiences at boys' schools. Um, yeah, and I think those characters represent a lot of the kids that I taught. Um, they're pretty universal. And I always get that from people who read the book and say, oh, I know a Tarek or I know a, I know a Ibi or I know a PJ. So, yeah, so that's where it sort of essentially came from, my youth mentoring. Um, but also just my experiences growing up with four brothers, uh, lots of cousins. I love the way that you describe that as kind of, you know, if you looked past or if you push away some of the other layers, because I do feel like the thing that you do so well in the F team is you present, you know, this these characters of young men um, and young Arab men, young culturally diverse men, and then you just like gently peel away the layers until we get to all of that complexity that you've just described. You know, there's so many different competing but often um, symbiotic loyalties and I guess the the kind of core narrative at the heart of this book which is we've got these four young men which you've um, you've you know listed some of them so Tariq who's our main protagonist and then we have Ibi, PJ and Huss and they're at Punchbowl High this school that is you know really riddled with negative stereotyping from the media and from the community but actually really fundamentally informed and part of this rich, community that they're part of in Punchbowl. And I guess their mission at the outset is to save their school. So I love that you kind of present us with this arc um, that I think any reader can really relate to, which is wanting to save something that's yours um, and feeling really misunderstood by, you know, all of the other forces around you. You grew up yourself in um, Western Sydney, is that right? Yeah, Punchbowl. <laughs> Still live here. Yeah, amazing. So tell me a bit about what that was like for you. Did you grapple with any of these kinds of issues um, when you were growing up and going to high school um, in the same area? Yeah, I think I did. I think it's a little bit different with Punchbowl boys because a lot of media, um, they're always surrounded by um, media and things that are happening. But in terms of my experiences, um, Punchbowl presented to me a, a safety as like sort of like a bubble for me. I thought, you know, everything was fine with Arabs and Muslims. I really didn't understand racism because I grew up in such a rich and culturally diverse area. Basically, um, everyone around the world is just living here in Punchbowl. And so I and I we, we got along. I never had any issues growing up um, in terms of being called names or you know, any racial slurs or behaviour within my community. It was until I stepped outside of my community, um, I, I really, I think this is where the book actually came and stemmed from and was inspired by as was an excursion when I was in year 12, because I went to Wally Park Girls High, to Cronulla High. And that wasn't a really good experience. Uh, just, it was after the Cronulla riots. So we were in February, so it was still raw and fresh, and my teacher 
lovely man, but had the best of intentions, thought maybe some sort of interface, not interface, sort of some sort of dialogue between the two two parts would be good. Um, but, yeah, it was still raw. We, he made us walk, t- catch the train and walk the streets and we're majority Muslim women, covered, veiled. Um, it wasn't nice. And then we went to the school. I was still oblivious. I thought it was over and done done with and then just that tension that I felt from the students um some of the teachers uh, really made me uncomfortable and I thought you know if if my teacher presented an opportunity where we had to interact instead of just sitting and listening to someone talk um let's just say sport um I think things would have been different um because sport sort of presented this idea of you forget those like you know religious uh, ideas and ideologies, your identity, any of that that political stuff, you know, you sort of forget when you root for the same team. And so I just thought if he just had done something where we didn't have to talk about who we were, um, and where we came from, that people would accept us and see us as human beings. Um, but Punchbowl presented to me like this safety. I just felt really safe there, and I couldn't believe people weren't seeing what I was seeing. Like when I go to the shops, like all the shopkeepers and owners, they know my name, they know my dad. You know, I talk, I write about it in the book. They give us an extra lamb chop, some bananas here, say hi to your dad, the coffee drinking man. It's really nice. Like I feel like at home, it's just like this whole nice village area. And um, I never read about it. And that is my home. And, and so I, I thought to myself, if I write a book, I'm going to talk about what it's like from my perspective, not from what everybody else sees. Every um, little phrase that you put out just then around Punchbowl really just kind of sparked all these memories for me because as a child, I grew up in um, Canberra, which does not have as rich a cultural um, life as, you know, Western Sydney and and those areas where there's not just cultural diversity present, but a genuine kind of way of life that's a melting pot of all the different influences that come together. So we used to come up to Sydney quite a bit as a family. We'd go to Lakemba and we'd shop at all the halal butchers. And, you know, at that time there was one halal butcher in Canberra. So, you know, we'd go nuts. We'd go buy all the different stuff that we just couldn't get here. Um, And it was so, it's fascinating hearing you talk about it because it was like these little moments of feeling really relaxed um, and really comfortable because the people around you didn't bat an eyelid. Um, Whereas, you know, my mum, she wears a hijab as well. When we would walk around after the Coronado riots, um, even here, um, and after September 11, of course, um, there was that sense of hostility and and just feeling a bit of an outsider. And what do you think readers need to know or understand about Punchbowl, boys, to really understand this book? Um, that honestly, Punchbowl is exactly what you think it is, and at the same time, it's exactly what you don't know what, what it's about. Like it's it's such a uh, a place of contrast. So this idea of it's pretty notorious and infamous for. Um, uh, some of the the news and like it's not really some of the students are a little bit of a troublemakers maybe I can say that um, uh, but when you step foot into the school it's quite literally a family I felt as though those boys would do even though we really give it to their teachers and are super cheeky to their teachers if anything were to happen to their teachers they'll be the first people to like protect them they're very very protective i'll just give you an example a teacher was walking from her car and she was holding groceries it was like 10 boys running up to her to help her with the bags that sums up punch boys but 
10 minutes later in her class, you know, I'm probably throwing a book around or uh, just running out. Miss, you know, I don't want to learn. Why am I learning? It feels like an oven in this classroom. Why do your staff rooms have air cons and, you know, our classrooms don't? Like I said, that's quite literally in 10 minutes, that would, that's what would happen. That is Punchbowl Boys. <laughs> um, just but the teachers really care. Like they really, really, really care. You know, the teachers stay back, you know, really, especially with the students with the HSC, really trying to help them. But at the same time, those kids don't make it easy for them. I'm not going to lie. Um, that pretty much sums up Punchbowl. What, for somebody who's never been to Punchbowl, what would you say walking down the street is like? Uh, a lot of uh, people yelling at each other from one end of the street part to the other. Say hi to your dad for me. Where have you been? And things like that. But it's, it's really multicultural. Like um, you have the pub in the corner. Uh, and I live right next to it. So you have the pub in the corner. Then you have a place um, where there's these really lovely African ladies and they plait um, hair. Then right next to it is the coffee drinking Sahara men where they just drink Lebanese coffee outside. And every time I walk by, they want to tell me a story about my dad. Do you know your dad is such a great man? Do you know, don't disappoint him. And then I cross the road and there's a Turkish pizza pie place. And then you walk down the street and then there's El Janna, the famous El Janna with a charcoal chicken. And you can smell the charcoal chicken. <laughs> it's just this aroma everywhere. On the corner, there's like a fruit place. And it's just pretty much Honestly, it feels like one big family where it's super loud, it's rowdy, um, but you just sort of feel at home. Like they'll do things or they'll walk, you know, they'll pick up the groceries and walk to your car. If they see an old lady, you know, there's a thousand barbers there. Um, so everyone, every single Arab guy has the exact same haircut. Um, yeah, it's just really nice and lovely. Like I feel at home when I'm there. And it's not just because there's Arabs there. That's not why I feel at home. I feel at home because I see the world there. That's why I feel at home. Um, I wouldn't want to live in a world where everyone looked and sounded like me. Like that would be just there's no, that that would be detrimental to your to your growth as a human being. Um, I love it because I learn about the world from Punchbowl. The place I come from represents what I see around the world. You kind of touched on this thing, which is you know well-meaning attempts to try and build dialogue between two different groups, which A, assumes that, you know, if you're um, an Arab Australian, you're inherently different to other Australians, right? So that's the first kind of thing that kind of sparks. But if you try and do that without meaningful connection, um, you can't really achieve any genuine um, dialogue at all, can you? Because you're saying, tell me about you, you tell me about you. Okay, we've heard your stories. That's kind of it. Whereas if you give young people an opportunity to like genuinely work together, which is what happens in the F team, um, there's there's that richness and that opportunity for really genuine, meaningful connection. Um, and it's beautiful to behold in the book. So your characters, um, this, this amazing wolf pack who are funny and complex and full of different kind of, um, you know, emotions and all of that kind of the riot that goes inside you when you're a teenager, um, they have to collaborate with four kids from Cronulla in a football team. And watching their journey over the course of the book is actually just so heartening. Um, but I thought it was interesting that you chose to write from the perspective of boys. So, you know, you just mentioned that you always thought if I write a book, it's going to be from my perspective. And I can see where it came from, um, you know, from your experience of being a youth mentor. But was that challenging to get in the head of a young Arab man? Oh, it was very challenging. But sort of uh, my experiences as a teacher, so I've been teaching for over 10 years. Um, and I taught uh, in the same area I grew up in. Um, and I just 
the market is made for girls and females. It is. There's lots of books there, lots of characters that people can relate to. But when I was teaching, and I'm so passionate about reading, being a reluctant reader myself, like I hated reading growing up. Um, so it's so strange that I am a writer now. Uh, but growing up, I hated reading. I never read. I, I say this story all the time because it's so central to why I became a writer. Um, it was the fact that I didn't like reading and writing. Um until much older in age. It was honestly, it was because it was my HSC and I had to read so I could write a response to the texts. That's what my teacher told me. But um, just teaching, and then when I found a love for reading, um, I noticed all the boys don't like to read. I thought essentially it's Arab, Muslim boys. Um, and that's just not true. I teach everywhere. I go around all parts of Sydney and I always ask this question to all the students, high schoolers and uh, students in primary, hands up if you like to read. And I can count them on my hand. There's probably about a few hands uh, that go up that they do like to read. And sometimes I'm at all white schools, sometimes I'm at multicultural. It doesn't matter. Most of these kids are not reading anymore. Um, it's, but it's mostly boys. And then I said to one of the kids that I was teaching, I was like, you know, what, what's it going to take for you to read? Because like, you can't be on the iPad all the time or a, a, a computer. You have to read. It's an essential skill for any job. Um, and he's like, yeah, but it's boring. I don't, I don't find anything in the books for me. I don't know any of the places that they're talking about. I can't relate to any of the characters. Um, so why should I read? And it just hit me. I was like as a joke, said to them, what if I write a book? Would you read it? Um, and they said yes. And, yeah, that was a five-year journey. I, I thought it would take me two weeks to write a book, and it's not just the case. But I wrote from the perspective of boys for a few reasons. A, to to show them that they're, they're worthy, because a lot of the publishers said to me, if you just change it and make it females, we'll, we'll, get, we'll take you on board straight away. Because the market, at the end of the day, the publishing market wants to make money. And they said to me, you're not going to make money from an all-boys book. You're not going to make money, put it, um, or we're not going to make money, rather. That's what they were saying. Um, how do we market it? How do we sell it? It's from Punchbowl. It's boys. Just leave it at the bottom, you know, write something else. And a few years later, you know, you can pick that up. I said, you know, you say boys aren't readers, but maybe it's because we're not giving them quality reads. Let's let's actually invest um, in in literature for young men. It was very challenging, I'm not going to lie, but um, I put a part of myself in each of those characters. So then it became much easier for me. I wasn't so distant. I didn't feel like they were foreign. I actually felt like I was looking into a mirror and it didn't matter what gender where you are. When you're feeling lost or you're feeling like you're on the outskirts of uh, mainstream uh, or society, everybody relates the same. It doesn't matter if you're a female, male, whatever you identify with, you feel that lack of belonging really is damaging. Um, and so I decided to put myself in each of those characters. And so it just felt at home. Mm. I think you've also touched on something that, you know, I find really frustrating to hear, which is that if you are going to write a book from the perspective of an Arab man, people will be interested in it if it's gritty and dark and full of trauma and trouble and kind of speaks to that, you know, existing cultural stereotype of an angry Arab male or a troubled Arab male. But if you want to write a book like what you've created, which is funny and full of heart and, you know, positive but still complicated and, you know, there's a there's a real nuance to these characters where they just don't fit any particular uh, stereotype. In fact, I would say that what's fascinating about reading these characters, particularly Tariq as your protagonist, 
you know, in some ways he really reinforces the stereotypes. You know, so he can be a bit um, chauvinistic. He's not very clever about his feelings. Um, he wants to turn to, you know, his loyalty often um, comes out as wanting to stand up for his friends with his fists and then he kind of remembers his word second. Um, but then at the same time he really smashes all those stereotypes too, right? Like his best friend is his little sister. He will do anything for anyone in his family. He finds a love of poetry. He's actually a very um, empathetic, warm, compassionate young man. And that to me is is such an interesting and genuine read. But to be told that there's no market for that is maybe the most disappointing thing um, you can hear as a writer. How, how did you find the resolve to push through when you were being told, well, who's going to read this book? So this was going to get published. I didn't care how I did it. Um, And I think you touched on a a really, really a few good points because um, most people who are amongst Punchbowl boys or the boys around this area would say the exact same thing that you said. And while they fit all the stereotypes, when you really sit down with them and get to know them, um, what they wanted most, and I've sat with hundreds of boys, what they wanted most at at the end of the day was just acceptance and love and affection that's all they want and I've been teaching for over 10 years and I it doesn't matter every single boy that I've taught that and I used to get mostly troublemakers to be quite honest with you but um the cheeky ones at the end of the day they just wanted to know that someone's fighting for them and and I said this and I've spoke to a lot of boys from punch bar I said look even though you feel like the world's against you and this but this idea of of this victim mentality is not going to serve you. It is. It really isn't. Because as hard as you think you have it, you have no idea how hard it is for a female, especially a female of colour and a person wearing a hijab, a visibly Muslim woman. So those excuses mean nothing to me. So I, this tough love had to come out. Um, and I do write about it in the book with his older sister, Fida, constantly trying to put him in line. It's the women in the book that really... Um, uh, for me, I loved writing about, and they were genuinely, those. Are, that's my sister. My sister's name is Fida. And all those characters are real. My brother, Abdul, so everybody is real. There's no one there that's not real. Um, and if you look at lots of people um, in, in Punchbowl and the communities and the families, those boys, if you sit down and speak to them, that's what they're really like. And they know that they feed into the stereotype. But they don't have the skills, the emotional intelligence to move forward and to actually make good decisions. Um, and so when you tell them, you know what, actually you're good enough or you matter, it's it's magic what it actually does. So I see it in their eyes like I can't believe someone believes in me. And I know that sounds cliche and I know that sounds like some fairy tale, but it's not. Um, most of those boys now see me in the streets and say, Miss, I'm a reader now. I never read before. But... I want to read, and now I want to write because I know that there's a lack of literature for us. I want to be the voice now. So absolutely, <laughs> but don't get me wrong. When I was in that school, I was like, oh, no wonder why the media is here sometimes <laughs> because, and I tell them, I mean, and I use humor a lot, and I'm like, I, I try to make a joke about it to sort of connect with them to make them see. Um, but yeah, that's yeah, it's pretty interesting. You sort of took me down memory lane, actually. <laughs> I love that. You can really see um, the passion and the love that you have for these kids, you know. Um, And I got to say, you sound like the perfect kind of 
um, troublemaker whisperer to come into a school and be like, look, here's your dose of tough love, but I'll also give you a little bit of inspiration and a bit of a nudge to maybe do a bit better, um, which I love. Um, I think what one of the things that you touched on there that I think is really important though is that what we see in the F team isn't just the um, young boys from Punchbowl being um, angry sometimes and having maybe some sexist views and wanting to um, resort to their fists when things don't go their way. We also see a real complexity to the boys from Cronulla who they they form their rugby team with. So one of the things that I really loved about reading this book is that there's this kind of horizontal narrative that sweeps across the whole book that is all about how as humans we actually share more in common than we have that divides us because these are four kids from Punchbowl who have literally nothing in common with the four kids from Cronulla. And even within the groups, you know, you realise straight away the big contrast between them isn't actually um, their race or their religion or their attitudes. It's that the wolf pack have genuine bonds of loyalty and solidarity, whereas these kids from Cronulla really haven't been given the opportunity to have the same. They're all quite different. They're a little bit fractured. Um, but over the course of playing together, they get to kind of form that um, that bond with each other. Why was it important to you to actually flesh out those characters from Cronulla? I mean, I feel like you could have quite easily not done that and let them be these kinds of, you know, these richer kids from another place um, who maybe didn't get the level of nuance that you build in in your other characters. When I started writing this book, I really wanted to be authentic and I tried to be as unbiased as I possibly can. I've met some kids from Cronulla and super lovely. And it's, it's and those kids like Aaron and all the ca- characters I was writing about were characters, that, uh, were people that I actually met, were students that I've actually met. Um, and I just, I, I thought to myself, wow, like, you I I was a bit biased I'm not gonna lie I thought I had these stereotypes as well because I, you don't make your way over like our community and the current community we, there's never a mix ever right um and so when I met them I was like oh wow like really at the end of the day all these boys are the same a lot a lot of them have anger issues a lot of them are struggling with identity a lot of them feel a, a disconnect uh, between the world that they live in and who they want to be, a lot of pressure, um, and I just wanted to be authentic. That was the that's the simplest answer. But I think for me, in terms of those characters, I really wanted to to show what it's like when what I was saying before, when you just strip away all the labels that sometimes these kids do have on both ends. Um, and you put them in a room. I thought that was really, I, I, as a reader and as a writer, I thought that was super interesting. Um, what if I put these kids in one room? What would happen um, if I didn't give them a goal? So I had to create a goal, and the goal was to work together um, to essentially try to win the championship. But there is one character that I left specifically with no growth, and that's Hunter. Um who I remember my publisher said to me, you know, because it's young adult, so a lot of these characters need to grow and a lot of these characters need to have a a good story arc. Um, But his story arc specifically stayed the same um, and I I didn't want him to grow because he still represented a lot of what I have experienced as a Muslim woman and what's what's out there. Um, at the end, there's a scene at the end of the the book where 
it's the grand final and they have to shake hands. And he chooses not to really shake their hands and he walks off. That's real life. That happens sometimes. It's not like this fairy tale that racism gets fixed now because now there's like this 40 competition. No, it doesn't work that way. Some people just stay the same. And so while I wanted to flesh out the characters from Cronulla, um, I also wanted to show that sometimes people just stay the same and it's not all fairy tale. And for listeners who might not have um, read the book yet, Hunter is this kind of awful racist bully um, who is equally awful to all of the boys, regardless of what school they're from, but yeah, very much kind of fulfills this entitled, privileged trope, I guess, that, yeah, I mean, in my experience, those people absolutely exist uh, and you have to um, I think make peace sometimes with the fact that to them you'll always be a stereotype. You will never be um, more than what you represent in their worldview, um, which actually takes me back to what you said uh, not that long ago about how one of the things you say to these young men that you work with is you have no idea what it's like to be a Muslim woman. Like you think it's bad for you, try walking a day in my shoes. So why didn't you want to give them that opportunity by just writing from that perspective? I feel like that's such an interesting Um, and quite a strategic direction that you've taken in saying, but you know what, I'll save that for next time. Right now I want you to stay in your own shoes. Um, Did you think that it would have just been um, a little bit harder or a little bit more challenging to get them to engage with the work? Absolutely. Um, I quite literally asked the students that I was teaching at the time, what do you want in the book? And they said to me, we want sport. I said, tick. Uh, We want it to be funny. Tick. Uh, we want Punchbowl McDonald's in there. Tick. I, I literally asked them, what do you want in this? What's it going to take for you to read? Because essentially that was more important. If I get them to love reading and believe in themselves, they'll start looking at the world differently because there's a backbone now where they don't have a backbone right now and things seem very abstract, even if even if it's things like Muslim women, like even that's, that shouldn't be, but it seems so far away. Um, and so I strategically, because I am writing about <laughs> Muslim women now in my second book, but I, I strategically left it and I wanted, just from all my experiences, I thought it just felt right to do that and create really strong women characters. And somehow I'm trying to get those women characters to, in a, and trying to take them and put them in a new sort of direction, maybe my second book or something, trying to mix. So I'm trying to do that to show that there's a connection. But, um, yeah, it was completely strategic. And at the time, that's what felt right. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST.
you don't shy away from having complex female characters in the book. Like you said, there's Vida, the sister, and she is this strong, um, intelligent, amazing young woman who's really um, struggling with some of the expectations that are on her and just, you know, not even from within her own family, even Tariq, you know, completely um, just isn't able to see her as a full person. Um, And then, of course, there's Jamila, who is the love interest. Um, But this might actually be my favourite love story in a young adult novel because it's not straightforward and this girl gives as good as she gets. Um, she does not, in, she is not the instigator. She does not fall head over heels and she really holds him um, to account. She kind of, she pushes Tariq to be a better person um, and it's also delightfully chaste, um, which for me, you know, growing up as a Muslim as well, like reading books, sometimes I'd be like, well, I don't think my parents would be thrilled about me reading this particular book where the teenagers just go off to parties and hook up and etc. But also it was just so far from anything that I could imagine, right? Because we weren't allowed to date. And like the most time you spent with young men of your age was at family gatherings where you were surrounded by your huge, um, you know, extended network of other Muslim relatives who were watching you like a hawk. Um, so reading this is actually really lovely because I was like, oh, it feels relatable and it feels um, really authentic. So, you know, I can't imagine that young men are super keen about talking about their feelings with uh, with the teacher anyway, let alone um, a female teacher. And then you put this love story in. I want to know if anyone reacted to it or um, what feedback you got on that. Funny enough, I that was the most I struggled with. I, I couldn't because, like you said, I don't have the experience. Like I didn't know what it was like to be around young men, and I was like, "How am I supposed to write this love interest?" Um, like, and I thought I had to do it in a way that I had been reading. So everything I read was what you said, parties. Um, it's just a typical, because it's young adult, it's just a typical boy meets girl, girl meets boy, etc. There's a bit of friction and they get over it. But I really wanted this love story to be authentic and real, but also like different. So essentially the other character that I really love is Mariam, who was his ex. But I, most young adults always have to have two women fighting over a man. And I deliberately did not want to do that because, um, and I know Jamila says it in the book, like, who do you think you are? Like, do you think two women are that, like, would you think we're that easy to fight over you? Like, you're nothing. And I love that. Like, she really put him in his in his place. And I deliberately said that. And funny enough, people's reaction is that is their favourite. Every single time people talk to me about the book, it's always the standout is Jamila. And the fact that Mariam and Jamila became friends, they didn't fight over somebody else. And really, um, Tarek was, had to um, live up to a, a much higher standard than what he was used to, um, getting things his way all the time because of his dimples, because of his athletic ability or whatever it is, that meant nothing. And I deliberately created him in a way where he is attractive and just in real life when I meet young boys who think they're all that, um, generally get what they want. And I really wanted to create him in a way that your looks mean nothing. Like you really, your character and who you are as a person and your integrity is what will get you over the line, not your dimples and your six pack. And in most young adult books, it's always this, you know, if it's the if it's in the perspective of the of the love interest, she's always talking about that, you know, the blonde hair flowing and then the body and and it's like that means nothing. Like it absolutely means nothing if you're a douchebag. So, um, and I, I, so yeah, I, I get, I love the people's reaction because I never thought I would get that reaction because I found it so difficult. 
to write about <laughs> love and teenagers. I just thought it was a bit cringe. I'm not going to lie. Um, but it's funny enough, it's had a really positive, yeah, people like it. I think it's actually one of the, yeah, the most real feeling um, interactions in a romance setting in a young adult book that I've read in a really long time because there's that real, especially for your year 10 kind of age group, right? Because realistically, like I love that Mariam's his ex when they probably like said hello three times and maybe sent two text messages. Um, and that was like the entirety of their relationship. And yeah, I think, um, I was surprised by how invested I got in their relationship because I was like, I, I love that this chick is really giving him a hard trot, um, but he can recognize how amazing it is to have a feisty, strong, intelligent woman in your life and find all of that really attractive, which was, yeah, lovely. Um, and I think it also shows how there's literally not a single character in this book who isn't three-dimensional other than Hunter, I will agree, um, because Mariam gets that kind of just enough airtime to show that she is more than whatever Tariq thinks she is. Um, And similarly, maybe a standout character for me was actually his father, who is just this incredibly nuanced, wonderful gentleman who I particularly really, um, I felt really strongly about him because growing up right in the aftermath of September 11, I always felt like my father was stereotyped by everyone else as this patriarchal Muslim father, right? And people assumed that he was um, really harsh and strict and overprotective and that he probably hit us. Like I remember once going to a parent-teacher interview and um, my sister um, had gotten a bad grade in something and dad jokingly turned to her and said, um, oh, well, young lady, I guess we'll have to talk about that when we get home. The next day, the teacher pulled me aside and said, I just want to know, did your father hit your sister? Like if you're in any of those kinds of circumstances, you need to let us know. And I laughed. I was like, my father is the last person who would raise his hand, right? Like that is not what he's like at all. But what, just because he's Indian and Muslim, you just assume that that's what happens. And so reading Tariq's father, who's this gentle but firm, um, strong head of the household in partnership with his wife, who are, you know, they're equally invested in their children. He does not um, in any way reinforce any kind of patriarchal um, system at home. If anything, he wants his sons to be accountable and to be responsible and to be good people. And the way that he does that is by loving them fiercely and then demanding that they do better, which is, you know, that's just the cultural standard, I feel. Like that's what we were all taught, um, that heaven lies at the feet of your parents. Um, But equally, the way that you are indebted to them, they're indebted to you. So it's like it's a constant communication, right? It goes both ways. Um, Were you thinking about that stereotype when you were writing him? Because he seems like a very deliberate decision to show this other way of being a strong Arab man. Absolutely. Um, Funny enough, uh, like I said, all of these characters are based on people in my life and he's based on my father. Same name. Actually, no, he's the only one I changed his name. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, because um, quick side story, but my father's super famous on TikTok. So he just goes viral, millions and millions of views because he's the same character that you read about in the F team and the way he speaks. I actually brought him um, and put him on TikTok and we do these short segments where I ask a question and I'd be like, what does love mean to you? Uh, Or, you know, how did you and mum meet? And he's just the sweetest guy and so compassionate and humble and wise, but really, like you said, holds the standard of 
that's how it is at home. Like I never felt like just because I was a female, I was less, quite the opposite actually. My father always reminds my brothers and I can always hear this talk at home and I still hear it, that the female quite literally is the center of the home without your mum. My father always reminds us all the time, seven children, without your mum, we are nothing. Without your mum, we are nothing. She's the queen. She's my sweetheart. So I grew up like that. Um, Again, when I taught these kids, they don't have those fathers. Um, a lot of these, unfortunately, sometimes the fathers are absent, whether it be for work reasons, whether it be just for emotional reasons or for whatever it is. But there are people like my father. There are, there's there's so many of them. My father isn't rare. And so he was deliberate to put um, him in the book because I wanted to show the young boys who didn't actually have a father figure that, that when they opened my book, that my father became their father. Um, and that idea essentially was what made him super viral on TikTok, where he just gets millions and millions of views. Everybody knows him. He can't walk in the street. People want to take photos with him. They ask him questions. He gets interviewed. He does talks now. And it's like my father's 72 and his life has changed because of this character, <laughs> essentially. Um, and he's, he's, you know, he's going into retirement now. But at 72, he found this new wave or this new energy and this new life of now where he talks to young kids um, and he, you know, his philosophy in life is until my last breath, I am of service. That's just, that's how we grew up. Um, and he says, my favourite thing that he says in the book to Tarek is, you know, you're smart but dumb at the same time. I love that because it's exactly what my father used to say to my brothers. Like, you have potential. Why do you make stupid decisions? Like, there's no excuse. My father says, like, if you, you know, were naturally not that bright, okay, we'll give you some leeway. But you're not. So you have the skills. You have the support. You know, we've always been here for you. So your judgment is going to be a little bit different to somebody else who's been uh, marginalized or, or had less than us growing up. So, yeah, I love my dad. He's, yeah, a good character. I think I love your dad now too. Um, and I'll be I'll be binging him on TikTok um, as soon as we finish chatting. Um, but I also, I love that line too, you're smart but dumb. And the thing that I kept coming back to when I was reading that was um, it's so not politically correct, which is what's so great about it because – in fact, I would say that this book as a whole, you don't shy away from putting the actual things that people say in here. So every so often there's something where you're like, oh, you just said a really like awkward racist thing about the one Asian guy on the football team and then he'll, but he'll give as good as he gets. So what I love about it is that you're kind of like, these are these are people as they are and people don't speak in the eloquent, politically correct, woke speech that you might see on, on Instagram. You know, people speak the way that they speak. They have the expectations that they have. Every single person in the book has something that they say or do that could be done better. Um, but they all also, like you say, you know, grow and change as they come through. But that in itself is, you know, to recognize that and to understand that, um, where somebody might say something that could be seen as being offensive or Tariq might have a view that's um, a bit sexist, that that's not the whole depth of that character. You're relying on people to really read the book as it's intended, you know, and and have a deep reading and an understanding. Were you apprehensive about that? I mean, you're writing a book like this as a Muslim writer about young men who, like all young men, are deeply problematic um, and also awesome, right? What, did you have fears um, about the way that it would be taken? Uh, no, at all, uh, because it's not my responsibility 
as a writer to fix racism or to polish people. Like that's not that's not why I'm here. Like you said, I I when I was writing these characters, I essentially didn't have any swear words, for example. But then I went to Punchbowl Boys and I sat at that school and it's it's not just Punchbowl Boys. There's no teenager on earth that doesn't swear. I don't care if it's an Islamic school, if it's not, I don't care. Everybody swears. And so I made the, the decision because I really wanted this book to enter schools. Like that's that was my target. And I sort of had to think, hmm, would schools still accept this because they're swear words? But I, I called a few of my teacher friends and they said, yeah, absolutely. Like if it's the strict Islamic schools, what they do is they'll cross it out. And I thought, okay, that's a bit weird, but okay, so it's not going to stop these students from accessing this book. That's done. So there's swear words. They say such inappropriate and sometimes, a lot of the times, really racist things. Um, They think in a way that's super problematic, uh, very sexist, um, but they, and I know this sounds going to sound really weird, honestly, some of them don't know. They don't register how bad it is what they say. So what I wanted to do is create authenticity and put these characters in the book and basically make it a mirror. So this is what you sound like. So when they read it, they're going to be like, whoa, that's a bit that's a bit much. And I've had that reaction from some of the kids. And I look at them and say, but you said that. That's how I got the idea because I, I was watching you in the playground and I had my little notebook and I was writing it. You gave me the idea, not me. And so a lot of them now are like, whoa, like that's not who I want to be. I really want to be Tariq at the end of the story. I want to be Hus and have his loyalty at the end of the book. I don't want to, I don't want to be like them at the beginning. Um, and so the, my friend wrote a teaching guide to the book because I really wanted the teachers to also understand that um, my job isn't to fix racism. I wasn't going to present these fairy tale characters that nobody says that's not true. That's a, I want to present reality as it is, but then they can unpack it and go, all right, so what's wrong about this? Or what do you think about this? And leave it to people. But you're right. You, you really have to have a strong backbone and rely on people and go, hey, guys, I'm not super racist. It's just, it's just uh, sometimes the way it is. In order for people to grow, you have to show what it is that they need growth in. That is such a refreshing take, Rawa, and actually like really, really heartening to hear because you're totally right. Like it's not your responsibility um, to try and forestall any existing prejudice that a reader might bring to your book. Um, And actually all you can do is write these characters and put them out into the world and say, well, if you can't accept that everyone has multiple sides to their experience and to the way that they see the world and no one person is a cookie cutter, um, you know, perfect example of political correctness, then, you know, you're probably not going to get what you need to get out of a book like this anyway. So I love that. And I feel as if you've given me um, a little bit of inspiration there to be like, you know, maybe just don't sweat the small stuff because readers should be able to see that, you know, the full breadth of what the book is trying to say. Um, this has been so amazing to chat to you. I just wanted to ask, has there been any particular moment or response that you've had to this book that has stood out for you as a moment where you've gone, this is why I did this? Um, I've had two. So I, I I wrote the book and it's published, but I had a private tour organised so my father can see the book actually being published. Um, and my father is the reason why this book is published. Um, I, I gave up. No one was accepting me. I, I've been rejected over 15 times from every single publisher. Um, agents didn't want, nobody wanted this book. And even Jeremondo, who published my book, said no to me at the beginning as well. <laughs> um, but 
my father said to me, no, you got to, you know, you're working really hard. I feel like, you know, our community, the world needs this book. And, you know, I essentially, my father wanted to write a book coming to Australia, but he had to work to just to survive. And he goes, my writing uh, aspirations and dreams never happened because I had to work. He's like, so I really want you to be a writer. And that broke my soul. Like he sacrifices me that I could be something. Um, and so he didn't know. He came home from work and I said, jump in the car. He's like, where are we going? I was like, just jump in the car. Um, and I took him to um, Legare Publishing, which funny enough is in Punchbowl. And he walked in and just the whole printing place was just my book. It was just everywhere, everywhere. All these machines was coming out of, you know, any nooks and crannies. And my father was just like, what is this? I was like, that's my book. And he was just so overjoyed. And I filmed it and I put it on TikTok and it went viral and things like that. But um, that was a moment just to see his face of just like, that's my daughter's name. And all the boxes with Rawa Aja, Rawa Aja. It was, it was a lot for me. Like I just went home and I just was very emotional. And another one was a student that I actually inspired me to write the book. He said to me, Miss, I finally feel like I'm not the bad guy anymore. Um, and that was, that's it. That was enough for me. I didn't care how many books I sold. I didn't care how many accolades, the awards, acknowledgements. Lovely, appreciate it, but not why I did it for. That is for those kids who feel like, like, a, like a weight sort of lifted off their shoulders and a breath of fresh air for them and they feel safe, that they can now go, okay, someone believes in me. It's it's all good. The world's not as horrible as I thought it was. That was enough for me. Oh, both of those are just beautiful, beautiful stories, Rawa. Um, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for chatting to me um, today for Book It In. And I feel like I need to go back and, um, and reread the book already now because you've given me so many new little nooks and crannies to explore in it. Um, thank you again. And um, I really, I just can't thank you enough for writing a book like this. It made me, even at the age of 32, um, it made me feel like I was really, um, really seen in literature, which I can imagine is the same for just hundreds of your readers. Um, this has been a pleasure thank you so much for having me um, and yeah thank you <laughs> Rala Aja is the author of The F Team published by Giramondo this episode was produced by Daniel Simo, Camilla Hannon and Alison Chan the executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Melanie Tate I'm Zoya Patel thanks for listening to Book It In We'll be back with another new episode next week. And until then, happy reading.